What's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode here on the Architect Network. Today, we have a super special podcast and a super special guest. It is our 40th podcast since we started back in the good old days of Clubhouse. And today, we've got our guest, uh, Arthur Manumani, and we're going to be talking about ecoparametrics. We'll be talking about what is ecoparametrics, the tools and technologies he's using in his practice, like 3D printing, uh, as well as his kind of more entrepreneurial side. He has two businesses, and he's also teaching full-time, uh, so we'll delve into all of that. Uh, otherwise, don't forget, if you like this podcast, give us a like, give us a subscribe. You can check us out on Instagram where we'll post upcoming talks. We post little snippets from the podcast as well as upcoming courses. And then with all this talk of parametrics, if you're feeling inspired, you can check out our Grasshopper Masterclass, which is online now on Architect architect.network. You can check it out in the link below. Uh, but without any further ado, let's go ahead and let's jump into the podcast. Well, anyway, thank you so much for joining, Arthur, because it's like uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, this is a special episode. It's our 40th episode since we started back in the days of Clubhouse. Uh, so, you know, I appreciate you're a busy man. And uh, uh, But the, the audience has been really excited. I think you've come up a few times in other podcasts. You know, we're talking about, you know, uh, interesting practices and architects. So uh, thank you so much for joining. Let me just give the audience a little bit more of an introduction for, for those of you those of them who don't know you so well, but I'm sure uh, our audience know you pretty well. Um, so you are a French eco-parametric architect, which I like. We'll, we'll, we'll delve into that. I like that. Uh, you're the founder of Mamu Mani Architects. Uh, you're the founder of FabHub. And you're also a, a lecturer at Diploma Studio 10 at the University of Westminster, you, which you are literally in right now. If you're literally in the you. studio with the students here yeah. <laughs> every Thursday, every Thursday, yeah. So, um, so I think that's it's kind of a we'll definitely touch on uh, on how you kind of juggle these things because entrepreneurship is also like a big topic that that we like to talk about. And it's obviously like a big feature of of your mm -hmm. yourself and your career. Yeah. But I thought an, an interesting place to start is like uh, to maybe touch a little bit on like how you got started with Mamu Mani Architects and, and where you are today because I think uh, especially just seeing recently you you're really getting going as a practice or like you know you're starting to to kind of run so to speak and I see you guys more and more doing really cool either installations or architecture products and stuff like that so um, yeah give us a little kind of how you got started and, and how you feel you are now yeah so thanks a lot and uh, it's very nice to be here with the students actually it's uh, unusual <laughs> uh, usually it's always in my office with some uh, very formal uh, yeah I like and all that. So it's a pretty experimental uh, session. But um, no, I, I graduated from the Architectural Association in 2008 in London, and it's in the middle of the crisis. Um, and so I ended up in a in a, a kind of unexpected job, really. Um, I was trained. It was a similar year where, uh, say, Neri Oxman or Ahim Menges were graduating, and so it was that year of sort of excitement around. Uh, digital fabrication and 3D printing and biomimicry and parametric design, but very early days before Grasshopper really was launched. And so it was, uh, and I worked at, at Zaha Did during my summers. And so I, and my neighbors were Mark Forns and Alvin Hong. And, and there was this sense of like, wow, computers that can do cool yeah. stuff and like really unusual um, geometries that can then be sent to really interesting machines. But really, we were trained a lot in um, in technology, but the practice were not necessarily adapted to that uh, to what we were being taught. It was a very uh, a pioneering school, and I ended up in a in a job where actually um, the people the, the practice had won a, a competition for a really complex roof, um, but they modeled it without necessarily uh, knowing how to do parametric models, and so I ended up be kind of um, like really being responsible for the geometry of that uh, complex grid shell. And, um, and that was great, to be honest. Like the fact that it was a practice that wasn't necessarily um, used to that sort of thinking meant a lot of responsibilities. And every Saturday, I was being asked to teach Grasshopper, which uh, really uh, pushed me 
to know it better because yeah. <laughs> when you teach you, you yeah. have no choice but to know what you're talking about so yeah. so i spent all my my friday evening learning it and saturday teaching it and that was like for i don't know two three years so it really sharpened my uh, understanding of everything uh parametric wise and um and yeah so i spent three years doing that and then that project unfortunately was uh, didn't happen and i was just like what am i gonna do and to be honest, I was asked to teach more and more, and I really, really wanted to assemble the 3D printer. And, uh, yeah. and I really, really wanted to use parametric design and 3D printing as a way to democratize and empower people to design. And, uh, and so I had this idea of a space like where people could come and customize designs and print them. And so I registered two businesses. Uh, one was called The People's Atelier, uh it's very french very fancy uh, yeah and then uh, another one was uh just my name because i knew that even though this would happen i i needed to have an architecture studio because that's what i've been trained to do and yeah. maybe yeah. they could work uh complementary to each other so so that's how it started really uh, awesome that's that's interesting so was that how far was that out of university you just kind of like uh I mean, because there's a mentality in like in that you started your own business. So it's like, uh, you know, you get out of that, I guess, employee mentality, like, you know, this is the way I'm going and, and stuff like that. So uh, to be honest, I, I think um, I think employment is wonderful. Like I kind of wish I could have done this in a, in a company. I did say to my um I don't like the word boss to my colleagues <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that um, we could have a fabrication space. Like I did kind of share the business plan or the ideas at least that I had with my, yeah. with my colleagues, but I, there is a moment in time where what you want to do and the, the company you're part of might not, you know, it might not be in the same direction. So really yeah. then I explored the possibilities and, and really starting a business is extremely hard. So one should only do it because it's needed because there is no other place that does it. And like, there was just no other, I looked at everything. I looked at all the tech shops, the hackerspace, the fab labs, the, and then I looked at all the architects that might use Grasshopper, but I was being asked to teach practices that were established. So I was just like, hmm. Yeah. And I was being asked to freelance on, on many, many, uh, projects because there wasn't the software just happened and and so um, so so really it was a combination of of being asked to teach to freelance and to uh, and and this idea that I was just pursuing this uh, what eventually people's idea that became FabPub which which yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so so fast forward today and, and it's now FabPub and Mamu Mani Architects right. Yeah, it's 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 nice because I honestly it's it's easier to connect the dots afterwards than it is during. Yeah. But Papub needed investors because it needed machines, and so it yeah. needed to be a separate company because, um, you know, an architectural company can't really raise funds because it's yeah. it's not really what we call scalable, and and it's very rare that you have a company that, you know, is actually beneficial for investors as an architectural company. Yeah. So it just didn't make sense to to keep them in the same and not just on an investment level. I really didn't want anyone to feel threatened um, to come to FAPA, knowing that some others, an architect there looming behind right. the, the door yeah. and yeah. like, and, and yeah. I, I, it was really genuinely to help people. Like it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't some part of some master plan. It, it was just like, there is really amazing technology that used to be in factories and that now can help you print locally. So, yeah. like, that's amazing. I won't need them all as an architect. I, I, we do some projects with the technology, right. but really, most of the time, other people use the machines. So why keep that just for me? And then, and then just sort of, it happened that it, it got a bit of traction, and our projects um, through the architecture company allowed us to push the possibilities so that others could say, ah, you use uh, sugar to do this pavilion. Ah, yeah. we use sugar to do our pavilion. Of course, that's the whole point because then we can change the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. That was the idea. <laughs> I think there's, there's a few points we'll definitely swing back to. I mean, like yeah. the, the, the business model side is, is not something we really talk about as architects, yeah. right? Like um, you're right, the, the FAPA business model versus an 
an architecture business model is a strange thing, right? Because yeah. it, 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 you're kind of like an R&D firm. It is like very much about building a name and reputation. And, yeah. you know, it's a very complicated, uh, I mean, the idea is simple, right? You offer services for money, but it's like uh, selling a product is is a lot in my mind quite quite simple you know like to, to formulate that business plan so now now how big how many people do you have at uh mamu mani now because you've just i mean you've just completed uh Carthesis at uh at burning man of course you did the epic temple a few years ago uh you've done some incredible uh collabs in the 3d printing space uh with cos and and other kind of stuff so um how what does your practice look like now um, so the architecture firm has probably around 12 permanent employees. The uh, FabPub has maybe, uh, I don't know, eight staff. And then we have about, at the moment, about 30 freelancers that are in and out of, of the office. So it's probably a total of 50, but but it's it's a very lean flexible like we are not always expanding with huge project we, we just had a very large project so we expanded quite a bit and then of course it's not always like that so we try to keep a, a core team that is um sort of always uh um long like thinking long term you know yeah, yeah, associates yeah. and and directors and um, i have a partner now as well so it, it's a uh, we, we, we nurture these relationships, but often often it just blows out of proportion because suddenly we, we are being asked to do a huge project. That's that's just the nature of being contractors or fabricators uh, for FabPub. Uh, many is a, a lot more um, long-term projects because architects have this benefit to work on long-term projects contrary to fabrication. Um, so that, that's how it looks resource, uh, human resources-wise. Um, but we're all in the same space, um, although, you know, I mean, I think that's really nice because the architects can get to see what they uh, work on and they can see it being materialized, which means, yeah, so that's really good because, and, and we, we worked on very early on, I worked with a friend of mine, Adam Holloway, on, on a plugin for Grasshopper called Silkworm, and uh, this yeah. sent... Uh, vectors to G-code and, and that meant that we could really work on the craft of 3D printing through parameters, so doing parametric 3D printing which meant that you know, depending on the settings you could actually um, like really work with differentiation within the 3D prints, so it, yeah. it really allowed us to create really unusual pieces and have real uh, mastery on on, on the different things you can do with a printer and 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 not you know have unnecessary material or and and so in that sense it really uh, it really gave us a conversation with the machine as opposed to you know usually uh, an architect models something and then send it to a contractor etc et goes for yeah. um so this wasn't the case it was very circular from the start yeah i mean that, that's the dream of adopting technologies as architects right is it going to connect us with the act of making whether that's through you know 3d printing or just simple cnc machine or yeah. you know robotic fabrication whatever it is i think 3d printing is the most uh you know beautiful sequence of like theory you got the the architect sitting on their laptop and then the cable <laughs> is going into the printer um how do you feel like 3d printing you know as an industry are we getting on with 3d printing because i you know i i was always uh super excited about it but i was always kind of like are we in the technology hype curve of of 3d printing you know of course as architects we went nuts creating renders of like giant blobby buildings that were you know monolithically 3d printed um but then you know i you guys are doing kind of quite large uh installations with, with 3d printing as well as architectural products um you know we're we're in the office uh collaborating with icon that are 3d printing homes right now out of concrete and and stuff like that and they're working on like more bio-based materials um but it's it's really kind of surprised me right like how quickly we've gone to you know you you can 3d print homes today um 
where how do you feel you, we are as an industry in the world of 3d printing like do you think this is going to be more and more kind of um, we'll just see it become more and more mainstream or is there still a bit of a learning curve to really get it to like an architectural scale of of uh, you know larger homes and stuff like that i think i think we're probably past the uh initial uh uh, you know, the, yeah, the fantasy world where people yeah, were like, oh, it's like in Star Trek. People are starting to understand that they can't really have one at home and that it's a bit hard and that the material does its thing and that the software is not, it's not like buying a, an iPhone yet. Um, yeah. I don't know if it will, ever will. I, I hope so. But I think we are really in a, in a, in a moment where people realize they have to uh, work with experts um, and they have to understand the constraints in order to model stuff. So um, in terms of like where it's going, uh, as in within what we perceive, definitely the strength of 3D printing is that you can print locally. Um, you can prefabricate modules um, like any prefabrication architecture, but in this case, without any molds and using things like biomaterials or ceramics. Um, of course, you can use concrete and so on, but uh, comes the questions of, of uh, environmental design and what sort of material for what use. Um, they are really interesting, like our, our, our new robot that we're getting, I'm quite excited, is uh, multi-material. So it switches its head between ceramics, biomaterials like bioplastic PLA and so on, and uh, metal. So I would imagine that if you create a a module, um, you would imagine that it doesn't, like you're not going to do an entire building out of plastic, nor are you going to do an entire building out of clay. Like you need, you need strengthening elements, whether it's timber or steel, um, it will always be multi-material and it will always be an assembly of stuff. Like I, 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 I can see, yes, using a giant machine, uh, printing at least the, the shell and core or something, but even yeah, then yeah, it's missing yeah. the plumbing and so on. So buildings have always been assemblies of stuff. And so um, so you need factories. Like, And the, the good thing about 3D printing is you can have mini factories that don't require the same level of tooling that a specialized factory needs. And so really, that's where we want to take uh, FabPub is having these mini factories around the world so that not only could you print locally and prefab building components or furniture or interior design and so on. But you also have the ability to grow material and also um, get rid of material knowing that it goes back into the cycle. Because a recyclable material doesn't mean it gets recycled. Putting stuff yeah. in the bin, you don't have a control where it goes. So yeah. if you're an activist, uh, environmentalist, you don't have access to the infrastructure that allows you to live your activism. <laughs> yeah. so you, need, you need spaces, infrastructural spaces, factory-like spaces that help you, uh, you know, give you a choice as a, as, a, as a human being to help the planet. Like, and, and we just don't have them. Like, even if, you, if we did like a PLA bioplastic uh, as tool for you, and we said, here it is. I still don't feel safe that this will be environmental enough because I don't know where you're going to put it once you're done. Yeah. I want to say, well, actually, bring it back or we'll come and take it back. Or we want to offer that sort of life cycle because if a business doesn't look at the life cycle of what they're doing, it, it just really is not matching the, the world today. It, it just, we can't not have a circular approach anymore. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting uh, view on it. I mean, like, I guess the advances in 3D printing are as much, I mean, the technology of, of actually printing is, is. Uh, I mean, I've assembled my own uh, little flat pack one, which I got, you know, from, from uh, China or something. And it's like, you know, building one is quite, it's actually quite a simple thing, right? It's just like a, an XYZ motor and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. But the, it's materials that is really driving innovation as well. Is there anything on the horizon that's particularly exciting you about, you know, moving up to the scale of, of homes, for example? Like, um, you know, I'm wondering about hempcretes, for example, or, or uh, you know, any kind of materials that, that you see excite you about 
scaling up? Um, uh, so I, I, one of the issues, say, with, with um, materials is the scalability, of course, but also things like basic things like fireproofing or um, UV resistance. And it's kind of boring, to be honest, but it's the key thing that we're missing in order to go architectural. Hemcrete um, yeah. is not structural. Ceramics is not. Uh, concrete can be, but um, it obviously is not enough. You need the steel reinforcement. Um, they were exciting, and they are exciting. Research done by WASP uh, about earth uh, printing, but they add lime, and they still need a timber substructure um, in order for it to stand up. And so, I, again, I think it's, uh, for me, it's, it's what are the modules we're building? It, it's uh, how can we build even flat modules you know you talk about the installation at cost we printed this in 2d so we used the, the our printer as a as a 2d printer um in order to print a truss that was two-dimensional when you print a truss in 3d you have to cool down the materials so much that it's actually quite slow and like and like it's not enough then after that you know depending on what the truss is made of you need the reinforcements the insulation the plumbery etc etc so I think having multi-material robots or having um, the ability to uh, also pick and place elements, uh, you know, what, what they do at the ETH when they had that this mesh and they actually added the concrete and so on. Like there's so many. Um, so when it comes to 3D printing, I would say what, what excites me is really the ability to have machines that are, uh, capable to handle the diversity of elements that a prefabricated module would need. Um, okay. And then the ability to assemble these modules um, so that they make sense. Like I would imagine a very clever brick would be super exciting. Yeah. A very, it's much uh, more of a, a modular approach than that, you know, of course, as architects, we're kind of drawn to that monolithic idea of you press print and this giant printer just... Of course, you know, it just makes our life easier. We don't have to deal with a contractor. But, <laughs> but you know, architects there, it's it's funny because it's, I mean, we, we tend to want to control everything. Like it, it's uh, yeah. the thing, isn't it? The sort of creator's complex. Um, but how amazing it is to work with craftsmen, people that know their jobs, yeah. uh, like that conversation talked about Burning Man. That, that's what I really enjoy when I go there. It's I work with metal worker. I'm on site. I'm I'm like an intern there. Yeah, it's a crazy. Uh, I, I the way people always ask me like, what is Burning Man like? I always say it's like uh, just the play, the most creative place I've ever been. It's like a city <laughs> of creativity. Like whether yeah. it's your outfit, you know the bikes a car a, you know camps it's just pure creativity yeah um and, and of course we should maybe touch on it you know like burning man is is very you're very linked to burning man and, and your your practice is is very uh linked to burning man it is almost um you know i think how did burning man play a big role is is kind of what i'm getting at is uh because you, you started with these kind of trips uh to do with your uh unit in westminster right and i'm seeing a lot of stuff in the background which is uh <laughs> looking looking uh burning manny um so yeah how, how much did burning man play a role in you know not only the development of mamu manny but you know what you teach and, and you know, yeah i mean it's funny because uh you know i was i was uh, i mean i'm very much a, a geek like i i didn't go to any of these events. You know, I've never been to Glastonbury here. Um, yeah. And and I was teaching Grasshopper and I was very much in the digital world. And my colleague, Toby, who, who, with who I teach here, um, I mean, it's been 10 years that we teach here. And it's nice to do it, to do this interview from here because it's, uh, you know, I love it. Like I could potentially yeah. stop, but I, I just don't want because it's just this amazing um, collaborative spirit and, and, and it's so fresh and there's always new research to explore and understand and make sense of like AI and so on. Um, mm -hmm. but he, you know, had a, a girlfriend or something that, that, that came back from, from Burning Man. And then he's mm -hmm. like, oh, there's this place in the U S and we have to, we had to get it. We had an interview with the, the Dean or, uh, and, and, uh, we're like, well, 
we're both interested in things like Freyoto, like, you know, the architecture of Freyoto or Buckminster Fuller and, um, and the idea that, you know, form finding of, of, of also the notion of modularity, all this was already here in our, in our, in our desire to, to explore those things. And then because he, his girlfriend came back and said, there's this amazing place where people are assembling <laughs> giant geodesic domes and there are all these principles giving no trace and self-reliance and, it's a really interesting place and it's really unusual and it's got an em- element of play and playfulness, which parametric design really lacked. It was very serious. It was, parametric design was, you know, component based and like, and then you had these, I don't know, it was, it was, it was beautiful maybe, but not playful. And yeah. so, and so we pitched Burning Man at, at the Dean that I was like, we're never going to get the job right. <laughs> and I was 28 years old, and it asked for a, a, for a unit master, uh, and <laughs> and so and somehow we got the job. And I, you know, so maybe one of the reasons I'm here is I'm so grateful that they even took a shot at it, you know. And and we we started submitting designs to Burning Man. We realized there was a grant, and so we had 20 students working, you know, for like six months on a design. And so they were amazing renders, beautiful proposals. They're all on wewanttolearn.net. We had that group where we wanted to share everything and like yeah, create yeah. this community of, of experiments like, like Freoto was doing with the uh, Institute for Lightweight Structure, but like online with a blog. And so, and so people were sharing their display. And we were just, when students were like, oh, but it's already been done. And we were like, well, it's not about that. It's about continuing a body of research and sharing it so that you're just a, a node in a network. You're just a step in a... And in that spirit of humility, to see the architect as a as a researcher uh, was very interesting. And so, but Burning Man received these twenty renders, and they call us. They're like, "Who are you?" <laughs> and we're like, "Well, a bunch of students and teachers here from Westminster." Um, and so Betty June, who was in charge of the art department, just flew to come and see us because I think she got really interested in this notion of a. Of university researching Burning Man, and that was like yeah. I don't know, maybe eight years ago, maybe. Yeah. And so, uh, and so she came here, and she got to tell us, "Look, your proposals are really impressive. None of you have won the grant because they're too crazy." But, <laughs> but here is what you can do. And then she started explaining the constraints and blah blah. blah and 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 so the next year we submitted again and won two projects, um, two students, um, Tanasis Koras and Georgia Rose. Uh, Colored Watson's uh, students, they, they both won. One was a, a scaffolding, uh, a fractal made of scaffolding. And then the other one was a, a, a shipwreck made of laser cut uh, plywood. And, yeah. uh, and, and it was crazy. I mean, we went there, 20 of us, never been to Burning Man. And uh, <laughs> Burning Man was making fun of us because we were just a mess. Like our camp was falling apart. Like, um, yeah. But the learning curve, the learning curve was incredible. Like I, I felt more like uh, the students than the teacher, to be honest. Like we ended up doing that TED, TEDx talk with Toby where it was, it was so funny. Like it's just, you can't see any of the slides, but we were trying to explain yeah. how, like how much we've learned and, and how this place, because it's so hard, because it's so remote, you have no choice, but to um, self-rely on, on, you can't blame anyone. It's all, yeah. you know, you have to fundraise for it. You have to, it, it's so hard that it, it, it binds people and it binds community together. Um, yeah. So that's how it started, really, the whole Burning Man thing. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, a, it's an amazing uh, connection to have a studio that, that kind of like, you know, doesn't revolve around it, but you participate it in, in almost every year, right? You, you kind of, you know, each student submits something. Uh, I think it's a, the perfect place to also learn the realities of building actually building shit you know like <laughs> and then also building in like the most difficult or one of the most difficult like in environments on on the planet you know like you can't just go down the to the shop and pick up another you know bag of screws or whatever if you haven't got enough you, you yeah. gotta you gotta make them or find them more <laughs> exactly you know? Exactly. So you have to learn welding. You have to learn what's a, you know, like what's an off-the-shelf piece of timber. What's a, a Simpson plate. Yeah. What's a? How are you going to get electricity? You got to bring a generator. And yeah. Then, you know. Uh, what you are you going to do with your bins? <laughs> you need water. It's it's um, yeah. yeah. I think it's a, it's an amazing uh, 
combination of of Burning Man and bringing students there. So I think it's um it's actually I didn't know the story behind it. I think it's a it's a really interesting story of like how you actually got that connection. But and so it's it's become a big part of you know uh your own architecture philosophy and, and your students and and you know you were doing all of these cool uh installations every year and then it kind of culminated in the temple a few years ago you did uh galaxia right which was in 2018 yeah i think i went the year before i really wanted to go to that year but at the time i was um getting my visa for the u.s so i was stuck uh in, in the kind of like no man's land of visa application <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so after after we went with the students, um, we went like there were about three, four years with students and it was really tricky because, well, I'll pass you the boring bit, but basically uh, we, we didn't get any insurance. So the, the, the university was here, but they didn't really, you know, they didn't want to take the risk, of course, it's really risky and the financial risk and the liability risk. So um so it, it was all on us, really, as teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's okay for a while, but I got really tired, like, doing the crowdfunding campaign. And, you know, and I'm like, and everyone around me is like, what are you doing, Arthur? Like, my, my, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, she's like, Arthur, what's going on? I had a, a students in the attic. I was doing their, you know, the grasshopper. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> and so at some point, I'm like, Can, you know, maybe I should stop doing that and maybe... Um, I could submit some stuff myself, and yeah. uh, and and so I submitted this piece called Tangential Dreams, which was in 2016, and it was really the for me the culmination of what I've learned as a as a student myself, to be honest. And it was made of two by fours, and they were tangents that were uh, curving in the sky, and on these tangents were written the dreams of people, and um, and people would write on these dreams, and and of course the 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 Temple of Burning Man, which is you know, for people that don't know, it's like every year a different architect creates a temple that's secular where people can write things about deceased relative and so on. And it gets really emotional because it's a, it's a place where people cry and, and they really moved me. I went there and I was just really, really moved, not having a specific religion myself, like to have a place where I can be spiritual. And so I think Burning Man really enjoyed the Attention Short Dreams. And then there was a competition for that is actually an open, an open I, don't know if anyone would like it to be named a competition, but really we know it as architectural yeah. competitions. Yeah. Um, and so we submitted um, uh, Galaxia, which was really uh, um, the, the notion to have like a, a universal symbol that everyone can relate to. Um, and to have a, I remember the brief was how to go from a intimate alcove like space to a communal grand space where you can yeah. congregate. Yeah. So, so it's literally, Galaxy is literally that. It's like, it's from an intimate alcove to a, a large central space. Mm -hmm. um, it also happened to be very uh, inspired by a project I worked on a while ago, which was uh, uh, for Virgin Galactic, the, the, the spaceport, uh, which is yeah. um, all uh, generated through uh, recursion, which is a, a way yeah. to grow things in the computer. Um, hence the, the, the the natural look of it and the Fibonacci sequence um, look. Yeah. Uh, so that was that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was an incredible piece. I remember just, you know, I was looking through Instagram and stuff when the event was on. Like, you yeah. know, if you're not there, that's the kind of only portal into what's going on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, some of the pictures coming out were, were incredible. And uh, yeah, that's a very iconic project for, for Burning Man. Of course, it's been featured in a ton of documentaries and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And I, I think that, it, you know, like when you look at a lot of your work, you can see there's this connection to uh, natural patterns, which, of course, also feeds into the world of parametric and, and computational design. Uh, is this kind of where this term eco-parametrics comes into it? Or is it, more, is it uh, also the element the third element of a you know sustainability um you know approach to you know like you say materials and, and design and stuff like that how, how would you define eco parametrics or where did that come from so uh, there's a few uh, a few dimensions to it um when we were being taught parametric design we wouldn't necessarily specify the parameters right like we just say it's parametric so just use these parameters. 
And so anyone could really gear parametric design towards a parameters that matters more for them. For me, you know, technology is only useful if it helps planet or humans, right? And so especially now that we know we have like, I don't know, eight years, I don't know, it keeps on going down in order to reduce our, our carbon impact. Um, and so really the environmental parameter is the one that matters most for, for me, but I'm pretty sure for everyone, really. Yeah. So every time an architect decides to um, create something, the architect has a responsibility to make choices and these choices should really be oriented towards the impact it has environmentally or, or in terms of society. Um, and so that really is the most important bit. There is always also just the fact that um, I find that there's a really interesting paradox that I really love, uh, which is like the more computerized our designs are, the more we use the power of the computer, the more we... Um, you know, we generate things with a computer based on rules, the more it starts looking like natural processes, the more it looks natural. And I, I love that paradox. I love that we had to go through technology in order to go back to nature. And, uh, and I see it more and more. I mean, I, I might take you around. We're looking at all these tools like Midjourney and Dolly and all these things. And, and, and it's just crazy how natural everything looks. And, uh, yeah. And so I, I, I love this notion that the computer helps us reconnect with materials, with nature, with physics, uh, with things that we lost when we uh, started creating shapes in the computer, really. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, I get that a lot. Like I get people saying, you know, doesn't using all this digital technology kind of you lose the craft or the, the human aspect. Uh, and I often, you know, mention your work as well, because I think it shows that there is this other digital, there is a digital craft and it, you know, for different people, it may different things, but, you know, technologies like parametrics or computation and 3D printing allows us to get back to that kind of, you know, level of detail, the materiality, the tactileness of, of materials and stuff like that so i think your your work is a really good example of uh you know there is this beautiful craft in embracing digital technologies which i think people you know are often a little bit uh what's the word it's like a, a natural kind of um tendency for architects to kind of you know not adopt these things because they're losing control or, or you know it's, it's going to be like super sci-fi kind of looking just because you use grasshopper for example um, yeah and i think that's where it gets uh it gets really interesting is when um you reconnect parametric tools with ancient knowledge you know like there is a reason the wood you know is a certain size there there's a reason how we cut trees how we actually extract the timber and so for example when we worked on the, on the um i don't know if you saw it but we worked on the orange headquarters uh orange yeah. certification headquarters and we had these uh these pods you know uh, that that were welcoming people to the building and uh and so we use straight pieces of timber to form the curvature. We use steam, like steam to bend them into the position they're at. Instead of CNCing a flat piece of, I mean, when we were taught grasshopper, we were taught how to nest things and then to CNC them or laser cut them and so on and so forth. But really timber comes in a certain way and really just like food, you don't want to, you know how we say, don't don't eat uh, processed uh, food. Yeah. So architects shouldn't use processed material, but the more processed, the yeah. more carbon. And so, so really, if you're going to use the raw materials, then then craft is linked to these raw materials. The type of tool that uh, carpenters use, the constraints that carpentry tools have, can we bring this into our grasshopper models, our parametric models? Like, can we have a carpenter advice on our parametric models? Can we have a, a specialist of ceramics advice? Like, can we, so in our office, we have, we have carpenters all the time coming around and we have carpentry tools. We have um, specialists of ceramics, of glazing that advise us because we have a kiln. We have things like using technology does not 
cut you off from the thousands of years of knowledge that's been accumulated. Well, one of our problems as humans and, and in general is that because we want to invent, because we want to patent, because we want to be the creator, we don't, we break, we cut, we, we cut ourselves from a sort of continuity of research. And, and therefore we lose sense of the vernacular of the, you know, the amazing wisdom that happens through through centuries um and so and that's why i love university because it reconnects you it you lose this sense of uh you know it's it's my kind of you know cold yeah. world where it, it's it's my ip type thing you know it's like well f it let's just share <laughs> we're very we're very like uh we're very guilty of that as architects right because it's it's almost like you know sometimes it's it's almost like we have to reinvent the wheel. You know, oh, the wheel's been done before. We need a new shape for the wheel. Yeah. It's like well, it, it's been working for a pretty long time. You know, like <laughs> we should probably, uh, you know, <laughs> well, listen to these these kind of like uh, yeah. past experiences or, like you say, like this kind of you know Passover of knowledge. I think is uh, you know some architects are better at it than others, for example, or more open to it. Is is maybe the word. I mean, their architects are, are sometimes good at it, but I I can't help thinking that we're actually terrible business people <laughs> because I mean, yeah. because we don't we reinvent everything and and yeah. really we don't create products out of what we do and uh, that you know the wooden waves project that we keep on um, kind of developing in our in our workshop and. Yeah. We have, we've done, you know, the, the headquarters for Borough Apple, then it was now in the boardroom of Orange, and we are working now for another iteration of it. We have um, a project that's turning into a product. And yeah. the benefit of that is we don't reinvent. We build up a, a really um, kind of um, well-crafted and, and, and sort of, you know, like, I don't know, fashion designers or... Um, they, yeah. can, they develop things that they, a craft that they become uh, very proficient at. And then you know that you have that quality. Or the car manufacturers, you know, if you buy a, a Ferrari, like, you know that you, you can build up onto that knowledge of the craft. And a lot of architects yeah. talk about the car manufacturers or, but they don't really, they always rely on a company that, um, that sells product. And so, Architects yeah. are becoming like uh, specifiers that say, hey, I want the Kingspan insulation here. Hey, I want the this and that. Whereas, well, why? Like, why can't architects be entrepreneurs and develop products as well? Like, yeah. I, I think that's a really important thing to learn. And here at, at Westminster, we, we, we ask students to develop business models, uh, business plans. We ask them to think of the clients. How can this be repeated uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, modularity and 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 how can it fit within an existing refurbishment? Because we can't always do new buildings; we have to refurbish. Yeah. Anyways, so these are, these are yeah. No, I think this is this is one of the subjects I, I really wanted to get you on to talk about because I think what you said I, I I've almost repeated on a number of podcasts. Like um, you know, the Ferrari example is like uh, you know when you see you know, Zaha or Foster's or Big post on Dezine or whatever, you always get comments that are like, ah, oh, it looks so Zaha-y. It's like Zaha are being told off for looking like their own authentic yeah. style. And it's not like you drive by a Ferrari goes guy and you, uh, goes by and you're like, oh, another bloody red Ferrari. Like, come up with something like it. We don't do it. And as architects, we're like, we're done with this product. So we almost like throw it away and let's start again. Uh, so I think that idea of, of like, uh, you know, your project where you're, it's turning into a product is super interesting. And it's really, it's really great to hear that, uh, your students also develop business models and stuff like that. I really think that's the future. Uh, and we're often talking about, you know, like yourself. And I think Chris Pract is also really, really good at this, you know, with the, you know, Burt project where he's kind of like put this idea out there and he turned it into a business rather than a competition. Like we spend all these time doing competitions, like each competition could be like a business, you know, you add a business plan to it and you have a little business, there. Um, which kind of brings, brings me to the thing I wanted to touch on also was this, you know, your entre entrepreneurial side and you have these kind of three 
or two businesses and a your full time teaching, right? Well, uh, one day a week. One day a week. But um, but there's some. I mean, it, it sounds on paper uh, bonkers to have like <laughs> all these <laughs> things going on, but you can see how much they overlap. Like uh, you know what what you do at Mamma Money is just very links to fabrication and and as you said you've already explained before it's it's they split because it's a completely different business model and then uh what you're doing it in westminster is almost like uh your ideas have your r d hub but also a way to teach the next generation but how do you feel it's been you know managing or like is there any kind of uh how do you manage the three you know kind of uh i don't know what you want to call it endeavors that you have going on and how do you feel we can you know maybe make the next generation architects a little more entrepreneurial rather than working on these endless competitions and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> um so just in terms of like logistics <laughs> um when when you um I mean, you know, there are teams, right? Like when, when I'm in the office and it wasn't always like that, like, and it's really easy to have the 10 business. If it's just one person, to be honest, like, it doesn't mean the business is, um, is, is like active or, you know, having a business and actually having a working business is two different things. And the working business always has teams. And, and so really it's about working with amazing people and like the people that work with me are absolutely amazing and they're, you know, and they feel a sense of ownership and they feel a sense that, um, you know, they want to develop systems and, and to empower others. And they have, a, a, I think people that work with us, they have a, a sense that it's, it's, it's useful, it's impactful. And so therefore it's not working for someone, it's working towards the, the greater good. So for me, that's a really important aspect of it. Plus, I, I think I was thinking about it today. The fact that I'm out one day a week means that they have to deal with the office without me, which means <laughs> it forces people to think in terms of systems and like how how can we actually work this out without necessarily having a top down upper management of some sort that is micromanaging. Like to me, it's a uh, I really enjoy seeing. Um, the development of systems that can scale like both in design and business on huh? the bottom-up approach mm-hmm. then a top-down uh, which is very much what architects offices are they're very top-down usually and that's i mean you can't blame a society wants to see that creative genius they want to see that uh, heroification of, of people like it, it is it is what society but it doesn't mean that in practice it's like that and we all know that you know i worked for the biggest firms i did and, and jean Nouvelle, and i can see the the, the power of the teams, like as I did, was especially obvious because you can see it continues without her, and uh, and and it was closely linked with with uh, university. I mean, they had the DRL, they still have it at the AA, uh, which is a program where the students are really taught a, a method, and 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 here, I mean, being here at Westminster, it's, it's you know I could say that it's part of a big master plan, but to be honest, I just really enjoy it. So I, I don't really have a logic yeah. for it. I just really I just really enjoy it. Like I just yeah. it's a great day to to get my mind off stuff, and I work really hard during the week. So to be here and to actually have a more abstracted conversation on on projects and on 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 the future, and not having a really clear you know, client or uh, deadline and just having a, the chance to explore is, is a fantastic therapy for the mind. <laughs> was, was there a point where it was not working, juggling these things and there was something specific that, you know, a, a change in mentality or yeah. or something? That, that <laughs> because, I could, you know, like even doing this podcast and working full-time, you can see there's like... Uh, there's points where you need to like, okay, this is working. You need to shift yeah. and, and adapt. It, it's it's like a nature, you know. You try stuff. Some stuff don't work. You sort of trim them off, and some things work, and so you nurture them. It's all about listening to the failures and success, right? And recognizing failure and listening to people that says, Arthur, what are you doing? Like, stop doing that. Like, or my wife going, like, you're crazy, Arthur. Like, uh, <laughs> you, you need a partner. <laughs> 
yeah. And so, so as long as we are open to criticism and not take them personally, but know that what matters is the future and the lessons that come after and not, you know, a lot of people would dwell in the past or a failure or, but honestly, you know, move forward and, and, and try to listen to people that tell you there's a real danger here. There's a red flag. We have these questionnaires in the office so that people can, you know, we have these long reviews where we sit down together and people are really open. Like when you're willing to listen, people will tell you how to optimize. <laughs> and yeah, so, yeah. so I think it's, it's the crucial, like, and yes, some things didn't work out. I was teaching too much. I, I sort of narrowed it down to my favorite teaching. I, I narrowed it down to, um, you know, a certain involvement in FabPub that doesn't take all my time. I, I narrowed it down to certain clients that I prefer working with. I narrowed it down. I, I, you talk about Chris Presh. He taught me how to say no. to. I was pretty much a yes man. Yeah. Chris is yeah. amazing. He's just, and he's such a good businessman. He is. Like he can manage. And I say this not as in like he makes uh, money or anything. I just mean it in terms of he is authentic. He is truthful. Um, he manages to uh, balance his work and his life. And he's a model to me. Like he's a, I love speaking with, and we are the exact same age. Like I love speaking to him. And he, we always talk about logistics, like of our lives and of our businesses. We don't, I mean, we speak design and we obviously did a project together, but it's, uh, we have a long conversation on these topics. I really, yeah. So it, it's yeah. nice that the peers can also speak and, and figure it out. We have a, a group also uh, between architects that we speak about these things together. Just, just like you, I think you have that in your podcast. Yeah, it's, no, I, it's, part, it's, a, it's a big part of why we started this podcast is like, uh, you know, you and me might go to the pub and, and have this conversation, but why not let other people uh, <laughs> listen in and, and get something for it? For sure, I'd love to have Chris one day. We'll, we'll hopefully get him on in the future, but... Uh, We'll see. Maybe to to kind of because I know I don't want to take up too much of your time, but maybe the last thing I'll will touch on is, and we you've already hinted at it already. You're already kind of playing around with. You've dropped the mid journey, Dali, uh, that kind of stuff. There's so much going on right now. You know, like with you know metaverses, blockchain, AI, game engines. Um, it's almost like you know, my job in the office is to try and keep on top of these things, and it's like it's hard right now because there's so many interesting things. There's so many interesting threads to follow. Is there one that's particularly interesting to you? I know, I know you've mentioned Midjourney and, and the AI stuff. Um, what's your What's your thoughts on the future of of? Or is there any particular one that you're interested in? Or uh, let, me, let me let me let me walk around a little bit. Uh, I just I just want to show you because this is like all over the world, like and yeah. it just keeps going, it keeps going, and like even more here. Sorry, you can hide. Yeah. You can hide if you want. <laughs> here it is. Oh, like uh, we just you know we're looking at uh, um, the AI because we're just. Um, I think we're we're. Like we're both fascinated, worried. Uh, we want to make sense yeah, of yeah. it. We don't know how to deal with it. And so we are collectively trying to make sense of what's going on. And we know it's a revolution, just like yeah, yeah. parametric design or digital fabrication. They were all, um, you know, revolutions in, in our world. Yeah, so yeah. if we don't tackle them or if we're scared of them without learning about them, we are, I mean, we're simply going to... Um, reject opportunities or be lost or and and so i think that's yeah. that to me is is a crucial aspect of um of our role as as architect is to try and embrace and learn before it's uh, too complicated and overwhelms yeah. us I think the, you know it's it's exciting but scary at the same time is yeah. a good way to describe i mean literally every day i'm i'm keeping a quite a close eye on it right now for uh, and testing it but uh, it's just like every day you find something completely mind-blowing that's, you know, releasing next week or coming and it's just moving so quickly. We were we were um, having a funny conversation with my colleague today uh, uh, where we were like, AI is like this, uh, you know, crazy architect that doesn't know, uh, you know, gravity, physics, the costs. <laughs> it just, it becomes this sort of egocentric architect that just keeps on creating crazy stuff. And, and, and it turns you into uh, someone who needs to implement it in reality. And so it, it, yeah. it turns the architect into the reasonable one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and like, 
and I, uh, Chris, I see Chris Fresh, we were having that chat the other day where we're like, you know, um, what, it, what AI will do to us is that it will force us to think of reality. Like what we just talked about, the, the size of timber, the, the craft, the, the, the materialization. You know, there was a whole era of paper architect. It's done. Like we will become the craft architect. We'll become the contractor back to master builders. Like we will become the Im implementation people. We won't be anymore the, you know, the sort of freely expressing our ego uh, because yeah. it just, it just won't, uh, it would just, it's not going to work. <laughs> the AI will do it better. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, architects have almost become image creators, and suddenly overnight, there's someone else creating a lot of images. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so like, where, where is our added value? And I think it will be in making it real, in becoming the yeah. entrepreneurs that make it real. We'll learn the yeah. other aspect of our job that we let go of because we were so fascinated by the image. Yeah, I think, I think you know, it's there's a long way to go for AI, but uh, but it's gonna happen quick you know it's it's happening quickly i think and people just gotta keep an eye on it and uh, embrace it rather than kind of have this natural uh, rejection of it but yeah but exciting to see you're already uh jumping into it yeah i mean it's it's hard not to to be honest it's so it's so overnight it became such a, everyone started sharing ai images and i i I got addicted. I got hooked. Like I, I, the whole night, like, you know, my Sandy, my wife, she's just like, what are you doing? Like I had my laptop in bed. I don't like to, usually <laughs> I like to cut off like, and I, I saw myself like a kid, like just enjoying. And I, even when I closed my laptop, my brain kept on going as if my brain had merged with the brain of the, like, I just, you know, these little iteration just kept going, kept going. And I just, okay, that's it. This is a tool for inspiration. It's incredible. But what are we going to do from it, you know? And, yeah. and it's nice because the students are, are they, they have these amazing images and then they try and materialize what they're seeing. And like, and, and it's, it's, it's very humbling as a process because you're not the initiator of the idea, you are the implementator. And so, yeah. sorry, I don't know if that's English, but, so, uh -huh. but that means you're, you, it's, it's, you're in charge of turning something to reality. And that's what yeah. architects should, should be really. Uh, that's, that's an interesting view. I never, I never, I haven't thought about it like that. Like, you know, we're now just, we're, we're, the, we're, we're kind of like the, the slaves to the, uh, the imagination of AI, right? <laughs> well, it's a dialogue. I think it's, it's always a dialogue, right? The, the material, you know, when you do craft or laser cutting or you, you're, you're bending or expanding elements, it, it, it's not like you're a slave to the machine or the machine is a slave to you. Like it's always a dialogue. Like you're constantly observing what's going on and then implementing. So it's very circular. The notion of yeah. slave is very linear. It's very from one side to the next, but it, it's not even for AI. It's not like that. It's a, it's a circular. The AI is not so, going to generate thing without you saying generate thing. It's not going to call you one day and say, I need an intern. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not. No, you're right. It's almost like uh, it's you're now. It's a co-designer. You, you know, yeah. it's a it's a collaborator. It's a, yeah. You know, it's a colleague. Yeah. Um, exciting. Well, I think that's a that's a nice place to maybe uh, end the podcast because I think it's uh, it's kind of like maybe a topic. Who knows? We'll, we might have you back on in a few months, and things are completely different. But, um, but I really appreciate your your time. I think it's been a super interesting conversation. Uh, for sure, our audience will be really interested in this one. Uh, I don't know if there's anything. You know, we we always invite our guests to. Um, you know, if people want to kind of uh, find you, obviously they can find you on Instagram. Uh, is there any kind of thing that you have coming up that you'd like to kind of, you know, promote or uh, anywhere where people can find you? Uh, we always like to give guests a, a chance. We'll put in all your links into the, the <laughs> below the video. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, it, there's a lot, uh, of course, yeah. and and I hope I, I hope the people that are truly passionate can reach out and. And we can see if we can work together 100%. We have a big conference happening in April called Shape to Fabrication. It will happen here in Westminster. And we will have the parametric world uh, and digital fabrication world. Of course, it's in the name, Shape to Fabrication. 
that will kind of come here for workshops and 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 talks and and I hope to see you Oli there and and other people. Uh, it will be anti yeah. Mr. Westminster. So I'm very proud of this. Uh, and uh, here you know, on Baker Street, where Sherlock Holmes lives. <laughs> yeah. For all our international office, uh, international yeah. listeners. Yeah, I saw that the other day. I, I spoke to Paul. Um, for Brilliant. sure, as a minimum, I'll definitely attend. If not, Amazing. I'd love to get involved. So uh, great, 100% great. I'll be there next year. So, and yeah. let's go for a drink then, because I think we've, we've been yeah. training to do this. But uh, as you see, it's, it's, it is hard to find time. But I think we should. It'd be yeah. nice. I'm not far. Yeah. I'm just in Shoreditch. I know you're. You guys Perfect. are up in the Containerville, so uh, yeah, yeah. Just uh, sure. Hackney Road uh, before the bridge. Turn left, the oval. That's where we are. Yeah. Awesome. All right, we'll grab a beer soon. But thank you so much for your time. Cool. Uh, and uh, thank you for everyone for tuning in. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for another podcast. I'm not quite sure what it'll be, but uh, we'll we'll have it on soon. But uh, yeah, thank you again, Alpha, and we'll speak to everyone soon. Ciao, ciao. Bye, bye. Ha, <laughs>